1: Hello, I'm Nick Cheesman, an Associate Professor in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University and host of the New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science special series on the New Books Network. In this series, I discuss two types of books with their authors. One type is the Exemplary Monograph in Interpretive Political or Social Science, and Afara Godrech's Freedom Inside, the book that I featured in the last episode, is an example of that type. The other type is the book on methodologies and methods in interpretive political and social science. And for these, we're better to look than the Routledge series on interpretive methods, whose editors, a Peregrine, Shortshay and Devorah Janow, got this podcast series going. Other contributors from the series have also come on to speak about their work, namely Frederick Schaefer, Cecilia Lynch, and two students of Leanne Fucci, Jessica Sudogo and Ari Glass, discussing her book on interpretivist interviewing. But there are a couple of titles in the Routledge series that we have not yet featured, and I'm very pleased that I've finally gotten the author of one of those, Shaol Shenhav, to join me for this episode. Shaol is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he holds the Herbert Samuel Chair in Political Science. His Analyzing Social Narratives, published in 2015, is eight years young, and I'm very glad that we're finally getting a chance to talk about it before it gets a day older. Shaol, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Shaul, you introduced the book by saying that its goal is to help readers improve their story listening skills by providing a systematic framework for the analysis of narratives in the social domain. What do you mean by story listening skills?
0: We're all story listeners in one way or another, and we do pay attention to the wholeness of narratives or, or stories. And what I try to suggest or to offer some not guidelines, but some elements that will help story listeners or readers to get better knowledge about the elements of the narratives that they read or that they analyze. And I do that by borrowing or uh, adapting a very rigorous and helpful body of theories that is called narratology and narratology emerged mainly from humanities but i think that it has the right perspective that can help us better understand the component of narratives and help us to do our interpretation in a i think much more systematic and helpful way but still leave room for creativity Imagination on all those elements that are very important to be
1: very good listeners. So you say that social science students and, and let's add political science students know about the concept of narrative, or many of them are trained in that concept, but not narratology. So can you give a little bit of a gloss for, for listeners unfamiliar with that tradition as to what it entails?
0: It's a field that emerged to study the universality of narratives. It it assumes that narratives, wherever they are, they have some uh, structures and uh, aspects that can be studied uh, as a body of knowledge. This started with works on uh, folk tales in literature studies. Uh, many um, main narratologists emerged from literature studies. And that's part- in my particular book, I heavily used Shlomit Rimon Kenan, who is a scholar of literature. So her book, uh, Narrative Fiction, offers a whole body of concepts that uh, really help helpful in my mind to also for social scientists to understand the aspects of narratives and then to adapt them to their own research agenda or whatever they want to use narratives.
1: How did you get interested in narrative and narratology? As you mentioned, it's not a field that attracts political scientists. So at what point did it become a part of your work and why?
0: I started by studying literature studies, so my undergrad was literature and political science, but my main interest was in literature. My mother is an author, so I grew up loving literature. In some respect, from a theoretical point of view, it was even more engaging and interesting for me than some of the theories in political science, but politics was my main interest. So from very early stages, I thought of politics as kind of a field that storytelling is very dominant. So that was my early stages of getting into political science through the perspective of
1: narratives, of stories. You mentioned that narratology offers many useful concepts for political and social scientists. Let's start working our way towards some of them that you discuss in the book. And we'll start with the big keyword, narrative. What makes something a narrative or not?
0: There are many ways to understand narratives. And although I am in the conceptual business, at least within this book, I don't really care for the exact way one defines narrative as long as it says something and and it differentiates narratives from something that are not narratives. But I know that in the field, there are many definitions and I'm fine with them. For me, at least in the book, I define narratives and I used, I adopted the definitions that are already there as the narration of a succession of events. There are other definitions that I'm okay with, the representations of succession of events or two events or more. So there is something with representation in the definition. It's not the things themselves, but representation of something. And there is also succession of events. It's a representation of something that takes place. There is a time element there. So in a way, poetry, it depends on the the kind of poetry, but poetry, you don't have the succession of events element or not necessarily, but in narratives, you do have to have something going on. But that's only one definition, which is very technical in a way. And what strikes me at least, that narratives can be very, very complicated and rich, but some of the key concepts can be quite straightforward
1: So this definition that you offer, there are, if I understand correctly, three elements in it. And we'll return to those shortly, story, text, and narration being these key three elements. But in this part of the book, you do discuss as you're alluding to other criteria that may or may not be relevant for thinking about narrative. One which I'm especially interested in is coherence. Why is it that coherence isn't included in your definition, even though coherence is a prominent part of the discussion in the literature on narrative? Thanks for raising that, because I think that it is
0: a really important aspect when we discuss the definition of narratives. And here I do adopt the position of someone who studies politics. There are additional criterions. One of them is coherent. In some places, you would see that you have to have a beginning, middle, and end. And some would have other additional aspects or elements that will be included in the very definition of narratives. It makes sense for some reasons, because there can be very odd narratives if if you don't have coherent inside. But I try to shy away from that, because for someone who studies politics, I would love to have the wide space of options of narratives, even if I think that there are no coherent inside. It means that I don't want to be the one who will put under my radar narratives that I or my colleagues, would not be considered as coherent enough or as having a specific structure because the structural aspects or the coherence can be biased by our culture, our experience, or whatever we have in mind. And I don't want to be in the position saying, telling someone or a group, listen, you don't have a narrative because it's not coherent enough. There is no beginning, middle, and end. There is no structure of narratives. I might say to someone, well, I don't see the coherence inside, but I do study your narratives. And and in some cases, by the way, for personal narratives, people under trauma or people that experience something, they might not be coherent enough, but do we want to exclude their narratives? I would say no. So th- that's the reason that I'm very minimalistic in the criterion that I will say, I will exclude your uh, your narratives because it doesn't meet that criteria or other.
1: What about causality? Political scientists are very often taken up with questions of how to make causal inferences from the data that they generate. Does that play a part in thinking about what a narrative is or isn't for political and social scientific purposes?
0: Causality is very important and also within narrative. So I do pay attention to causality, but I will not say this is not a narrative because I don't see the causality inside. So I can say that this narrative has some issues of causalities. And it's sometimes it might be very interesting. Why do I find issues of causalities? And uh, this is within the story or within the story world, I mean. You can have causalities when you study, when you when you analyze narratives, if you want to explain something with Narratives with causality inside or not, you can use causality in your research design. But within the definition or within the discussion on the definition, I will also say, no, I don't want to make causality as part of the definition from the same reason that I've mentioned, because I don't want us to be in the position saying, this group, no, this is not causality. These, these narratives are not causal. So you have to pay some price for that because you include very odd narratives. But since there are so many narratives everywhere, daily narratives, interesting narratives, big ones, small ones, every second there the world's generated endless numbers of narratives. So we anyhow, we have to decide which narrative we study and which narratives we don't. So I think that this price is worse to pay than saying... Oh, I will have the door to say, no, not causal enough, not beginning, middle, and end enough. And then I don't care about your narrative.
1: You used the term in the answer you just gave, a story world. So let's travel with that term and go into the first of the three elements that I've already alluded to that make up a large part of the body of the book. That's a story then followed by text and narration. And then you have an additional chapter on multiplicity that will come to thereafter. So beginning with story, what is a story world? Why did you use that term just then?
0: Yeah, so, so I'll go back to the term story, and I can connect that to the very b- beginning of our talk about neurotology. One of the main conceptualizations within narratology is the analytical differentiation between text and story. Story can be defined as a chronological sequence of events derived from a narrative as well as the characters involved in them. So it means that when you have the text, if the narratives are textual, there are other kinds of narratives that are not based on written text, but if we stay, remain on, on written text, so you have the text as a given and then you can extract from it the chronological uh, sequence of events. This is one way to define story, but keep in mind that there are scholars, that it is fine with me, that will use story and narrative interchangeably. So say they might use story and, and the narratives as the same concept, which is fine. At least in this book, according to the terminology that I use, story is something else. is It's something that you take out of the narratives, the the events, the characters within the events. So this is this these are the stories. and story world. It's a nice concept that you can say that from the text you can deduce or imagine not only the events but the entire world. So that's what makes narrative so interesting and exciting. I think that the text creates in the minds of the people like a kind of a world that is not only the events and the characters, but is bigger than that. But if we remain to the bare concept, that that's the story. And it has a lot of issues that you can use as a political scientist.
1: The term that's standing out for me in this definition, and maybe it's because I'm reading other work on it currently, is event. What is an event in a story as you understand it?
0: It sounds simple, but it's quite difficult to define. You can say that stories are consisting of a chain of events, but then events can be defined as you know something that happened, which is very broad definition. And there are issues with whether, at least it's, for me, it's sometimes very difficult how to separate one event into sub-events or chain of events. But you can say very broadly that this is something that happened within the narrative.
1: I want to explore a little more your thinking about the relation between story and text, because when you were responding a moment ago, you started by setting the two of them out in relation to one another. It may just be my misunderstanding, but the way I'm thinking of it, both prior to and having read your book, is that story is a concept over which narrative analysis seems to be able to lay a special claim, whereas text is not only germane to the work of literature and to the work of narrative analysis, but to all kinds of analysis, narrative and otherwise. So how is study of text in social narrative, in the kind of work that you do, different from the study of text by, let's say, someone working in hermeneutics?
0: When you conduct your analysis, and this is something I elaborate on in the last chapters, you usually do not study mere stories or text, but you study or narration. We study both of them. But analytically, and if we move to the concept of text... In one way or another, you care for the elements of the story. So you care for characters, you care for uh, setting, you care for a chain of events, you care for plots that we haven't discussed, you care for uh, the kind of events you have in your narrative. So this is a textual analysis that is more uh, attentive to elements of uh, stories, while there are other ways to study text from many other perspectives. Some of them might be even keywords. You can count words. You can do topic modeling, and you can do many stuff. They're useful, by the way, for also if, if you want to adapt them to the study of narratives. But for me, narrative analysis will usually care for the elements of narratives that are very typical in the concept of story or the story world and in a way in the narration. But I agree with you that text, like the bare textual analysis can have many, many different ways that I would not consider them as narrative analysis, but textual analysis, discourse analysis. They can care for many other stuff on many other issues.
1: That's right. And at some points, let's come back to them shortly, but at some points it seemed to me that the operations you're recommending are operations that had a strong resemblance with discourse analysis. Having said that, one of the things which is great about this book that I want to alert listeners to that we can't really do justice to here is that each one of the chapters has a demonstration. So we've been talking through some of the elements involved in narrative analysis some of the what. And then in turning to the how, having offered an outline, you then proceed to demonstrate. And one reason that we can't do it full justice here is that you have diagrams that you use to show, say, in the case of story, how a plot can be mapped out. Nevertheless, I'd like to ask you, could you help us to try and work through, having discussed some of the what, The how give us an example if if you can either from the book or from work that you've done subsequently as to how you do this narrative analysis
0: in the book I used uh, I tried to demonstrate the different angles for each um, narrative component on the same piece of text for the purpose of demonstration and I used the example of King George's uh, speech the beginning of the Second World War I offer a diagram of the main events and the way that you can put them together uh, to map the evolution of the story within his narrative. To see where does he begin the story, in what way they move from past through present to the future. One thing that you can see when you do that is that it's very typical for a uh, Policymakers or politicians, or a king in this example, to have different types of future or scenarios for the future. That's the way that the shape of, of the political narratives is that, well, you might have a common past, but there can be different types of future. And then that's one way to articulate the justification of the decision we make because we want to avoid this future, a catastrophic future and to pave our nation to that future. Then this is something that you can do with narratives to really understand or to capture, to map the the change of events and then to see how policymakers structure them, usually for a purpose. You take the events, you take out the metaphors, many of the rhetorical arguments, you take that out and you see just the bare, story and you can study a lot of it. You can study the frame of reference of nations, of policymakers, of groups within politics. And this is one way to utilize
1: stories as a tool to analyze political questions. In the the next chapter, the demonstration on text, the emphasis there is on temporality. You talk about three different types of time. One is story time, one is text time, and the other is Context time. So maybe you could tell listeners what each of those denotes and then again illustrate. Time is very important for people who study narratives. There are many questions
0: of time that are relevant for scholars of, of narratives. As you mentioned, there are different time cycles when you do narrative analysis. There is a time of the stories that is told. For example, if you have a speech by, I don't know, Biden, Trump, Netanyahu, whoever is speaking, within the speech, there is a story world with the temporality inside. So this is one aspect of time. There There are other aspects of time that are relevant, which is the context of the speech, because the speech has a political context. And this is something that you have to take into consideration if you analyze a speech given during World War II. There is the context, and then there is the story that he tells whoever is listening. So this is another element of time that you should take into consideration. There's also the time or the temporality of those who make the analysis, which is also Uh, You can see it as temporal reference. So there are many time cycles that one has to keep in mind when we think of time. And there are also issues of order that are quite trivial, but it's also something that you have to pay attention. Usually the text doesn't tell the story in the chronological order. Usually there are some flashbacks that go back and forth. That's what makes stories sometimes very interesting. And the duration of the amount of text that people invest for the time is also something that you might want to pay attention. You can invest a lot of text into very short event in the real world. And you can, you know, skip on some of the of the temporality and mention that in, in one word. And it is also interesting to see the emphasis given by speakers, even measuring or just seeing the amount of, of evaluating the amount of text they invest to stale something of to the time that they talk about.
1: That sounds complex to me. I mean, how would you go about in thinking about the actual operations doing the analysis? Are you coding a piece of text for those three different categories and within each of those categories, subcategories, story time, text time, and context time, for instance? Or are you doing, let's say, preliminary, more exploratory readings and then identifying one or another recurrent temporal feature that you concentrate on exclusively? How do you do that in your work?
0: It depends on the the project and depends on the amount of text that you have. So you can either start qualitatively reading and then Clarify the categories that you have. And if you do want to do a kind of coding, you can do that. Currently, I'm interfacing with scholars of computer science that help me to take some of these concepts to train the algorithm with our basic qualitative reading to do the interpretation and then to use. A algorithm to help us find the categories that we're after. I use it now mainly for plots, for plotalities, for different plot elements, not for temporality. But it is definitely something that you could do with timing. So I think that the potential for scholars of interpretation interfacing with current development in computer science are enormous. This is, in, in a way, it's not necessarily connected to the book. This is the time for interpretive scholars to use current developments in computer science, because they are much more advanced in a way. And I think that I believe that that this field needs people who are doing interpretive analysis to train the algorithms to read or to capture those very delegated and nuanced aspects that we want to use. So to your question, you can also even consider interfacing with uh, new technologies in computer science. But if not, which is you know fine, you can categorize the text or you can just read, I prefer, either using computerized methods or doing totally qualitative. So you can read the text and you can sign the elements that are important for you. That's the way you go, as long as you know what you're looking for. And the book tries to help you understand what kind of element you can use for what purposes.
1: A reminder that this is the new books in the Interpretive, Political and Social Science series. We'll be back in a moment after a message from a sponsor. Shaul, so, I want to come back at the end to your work with computer scientists. Uh, but before we do that, we do want to touch on the other elements so that our listeners have a good sense of the range of options that you're presenting them with, as you've just outlined to us. The next one is narration. In that chapter, you talk about the difference between extra textual narration and textual narration. Could you explain that difference and why does it matter?
0: So the narration is the process of communication, the story, meaning that the story is there, but there should be someone who communicates the story. And usually within literature studies, they care for what I term as textual narration, which means that the elements within the text that tells you or that uh, portrays the stories, the the narrator, the implied author, the the implied audience, and whatever is there within the text. But for us, for me, who study political political science or for social scientists, the external narration is no less important. So that's all the elements that are part of the narration that are uh, outside the text. The speakers themselves, who they are, pitch writers, communicating stories is something much bigger than what is going on within the text. If you look at social media, the press, the entire entities that are engaged with narration are very important for those who study political narratives or social
1: narratives not to rush ahead, but this it really does bring us to the question of multiplicity. So I'd like to bring it in here and we could return to a narration if it's useful to do so, because for me, this is the, the chapter that draws everything together. I found it in some respects the most challenging chapter of the book and the, perhaps because it was the least intuitively obvious to me as to what you meant by multiplicity. So can we start with the concept itself? What is it and what are you doing when you're talking about multiplicity? that it caps off, as it were, the preceding three concepts, story, text, generation.
0: Yeah, I agree with you that that is the most challenging and, to some respect, unresolved element of the book. And I think that it is even unresolved within the state of the discipline, if, if, the, if it is a discipline. There are some enigma within multiplicity, and I agree that it is challenging. So but when I think of multiplicity, I'm thinking of the process of repetition in and variations through which narratives are being reproduced and that taps on the importance of social narratives of narrative in the social dem- domains because if we go back to the beginning of our discussions my definition of narrative can include very non interesting narratives someone uh, get up in the morning and and have breakfast it's a narrative, but it's not important enough. Why it's not important enough? First of all, perhaps nobody tells this story, and if if someone tells it, so only two people will hear about it. The important narratives, at least as a political scientist, are those who are multiplied, who grow bigger and bigger, and many people can uh, have access to them, hear them, and perhaps they even embrace them in one way or another. And for that to happen, you have to have the kind of process that I think uh, multiplicity can be one way to identify or to describe. The idea is that it is not that the same text or the same narratives are copy and paste everywhere, it can happen. But usually the strong narratives are those who can be reproduced in different variations throughout many instances. And then states who are very good narrators, very strong narrators, whatever group you have, they can reproduce similar elements of the narratives, but adapt them to Different contexts. For example, you can have the basic narrative elements. You can have a core element of narratives that are told in school, in uh, ceremonies. But they will be different. But they will keep some similarities, as long as you have these kind of narratives. They are adaptable to different contexts, and that's what I think. I believe makes narrative very strong, and allow them to become dominant, meaning that they will overshadow other options.
1: So an important term here, which you've again introduced for us, helpfully, is core element. And I think we need to draw listeners attention to that because As I understand it, what you're saying is that while any part of a narrative can be duplicated, referenced, and moved from one narrative to the next, narrative multiplicity as such only takes place when a core element or elements is disseminated. So if I'm understanding correctly, that means it's incumbent on the narrative analyst like yourself to identify those core elements. Have I got it right?
0: You did. And this is a challenge. And this challenge is not that easy because it's a question of of similarities. In some respects, all narratives have some similarities. But the question is whether they keep some core aspects of core elements that we will define, We even without knowing the terminology that I use, that will say, well, it's a similar narrative, it's the same narrative, but told differently. So I use the for example the, the return to Zion, which is a Zionist narrative. So the the element of the return to Zion for Jews, it's a core that you can have in different ways of different contexts, but it it keeps some core aspects about it. And there are other examples of elements that you say, well, it's the same story or it it shares similarities to the extent that I would say it's a different variation of the same element. And It's not easy to do that, but it's a challenge that we have to make if we want to evaluate or to understand the effect of narratives. Because for scholars of politics, you want to see... What comes out of the analysis of narratives? Why they're important? And I think that they're important because they carry identities, they carry ideologies, they carry implicitly or explicitly the way you understand the world in a way. So if you're able to capture those similar elements, then that, that can be in each field, the way that people understand or frame the important actors, the important things that happen. That's what makes I think narrative or can allow us to understand that there is a dominant way or a dominant narratives which is not the same text. The text can be different, but it captures something core within you can hear it wherever you go, or if it's strong enough, in a speech, in a ceremony, and and that what makes them important.
1: And here you demonstrate that analysis, as you've said already, by looking at the Zionist narrative from the Declaration of the Establishment of the State of Israel. And again, I'd encourage listeners to take a look at the book because it's represented diagrammatically in one part, the work that you're doing. That part attends to what you refer to as the structural approach, and another part refers to the historical approach to analysis of multiplicity. What's the difference between those two?
0: The structural approach is the, is the way that you can take the text and find within the text. Uh, for example, in, in that case, I measure the temporality within the text and I have at least a kind of a hypothesis saying that in those places within the text that speakers or the text will capture together the entire temporality Within it, you might find the core aspects there. So it's it's in a way an attempt to unpack the structure of the use of temporality and then to search for key points within the text and saying, well, I might look for core aspects within the text and the entire practice is structural analysis of the text. You search for components component in the text. And my example was the temporal references within the text. And then you read the text and you do the interpretation of the text that you have. I call this the concise narratives. Within each big narrative, you have concise places that they, not in all, all of the text, but they say that the entire temporal span is there and that there they say, they talk about the concise narrative, which is Difficult to capture, difficult to understand, and not very easy to explain. So this is one way of studying the the, the core elements. Another way is to do like something similar to process tracing, to so go through text throughout history and search qualitatively the elements that you see as a reader that repeats and they keep similarities within them. So you can do the historical tracing of the different texts produced in different times, and then search for similarities, search for similar events. And then you can say, well, perhaps these were the narratives that created the common sense, the dominant perceptions of something, which is very important in politics, because sometimes we are constrained by the stories that people produce. And you want to see how it happens. So you can go through history and say, why do we understand no, the war on terror or whatever we have why do we understand it as such for good or bad doesn't matter and you can do this historical analysis through a different text to capture
1: that there's one other approach that you mention in this part of the book on multiplicity that, although it's only briefly mentioned, I do want to touch on it because I found it intriguing, but I'm not quite sure that I got it and I want to hear from you about it. And that's the exploratory approach. What does that involve and how does it differ from these other two?
0: The exploratory approach is it's just an idea to take the idea of multiplicity into the creation of potential scenarios. So it's in a way, it's a, it can be a way or a toolkit for policymakers, not only for scholars, but to think of what might happen if we take this core element and we keep on multiplying them in variations, what would be the next narratives? And there you can think of scenarios of future, multiplicity of narratives. For example, you can say, well, here within the the core element that we find or within the kinds of narratives that we have so far, I see something that might be developed into something very dangerous or very optimistic. So it's a mental process, not empirical analysis, to think of potential futures of development of narratives. It is important mainly for me, perhaps not only as a scholar, but as a citizen of the world, to be able to say, well, this narrative can go that way and this way. And you do that by way of imagination, or perhaps now there are other more complicated ways to do that. So th- the idea was to do this exercise for yourself and think of potential future. Usually you don't do that in books that sa- tell you how to analyze, but I thought that it might be helpful to at least raise this option.
1: You could have concluded the book here, right, with the multiplicity of social narratives, but you've gone on from there to a further chapter in which you discuss the elements of the study of narrative in terms of the relation between narrative and normativity. Mm-hmm. Why?
0: Yeah, it was a decision that I made mainly because I thought that some of the aspect that we study as scholars of, of narratives are strongly related to normative questions. And the main one is the one that I started with is the story and and the reality debate or question. To what extent story can represent realities, there are huge implications for that for each position you make. If you say that stories cannot represent reality, there are consequences to that because Mm Our history is formed by stories. So, disbelieving in the capabilities of narratives to represent reality has implications. The other way around also has have implications. And there there is a very interesting debate on that. So, usually, you know, it's not polar. People might say, "Well, narratives have the capability of representing reality, whatever that means," but. It's not the full reality. So there are there are debates on that, or the are discussions on, about, on that, and these discussions have some normative consequences. And I wanted to tap on those normative consequences and, and also to discuss those broad questions of what we do and what are the normative aspects that are related to that. It's, it's not that we, we necessarily have a normative stand on, on the world, but at least... For scholars who do narrative analysis, to keep in mind that there are sensitivities there. If you adopt one position, you have to know the sensitivity, mainly, by the way, with the question of representation. question of representation is very, very sensitive. If you disbelieve in representation, it means something. If you say that it represents, it also means something. So that was the place for me to put on the agenda of doing narrative analysis of also normative uh, ramifications of the kind of work that we're doing.
1: Well, well, I'm glad that you did that. And I, I think it is a very important concluding chapter for reasons that you're alluding to it's also not the case that you're coming down one side or the other, as it were, in this debate. Although there are, there are many sides, but you do encapsulate the two main approaches in these mm-hmm. very large debates and long traditions. But rather, you're recommending, if I understand correctly, to the reader that it's a question of what they're doing, their own what animates them as a researcher, and being attentive to the implications of the choices that they make.
0: And also imply that if you're interested in normative questions as a scholar, for example, for narration, uh, who are the narrators? Who gets to be a narrator in the social domain? How do you get to be a narrator? Usually you take other people's texts and you move them. This is one way, but you're not a real narrate- the, the author of, of the narrative. So who, who are they? How to become one? These are normative questions uh, that are very relevant for, for social scientists. I want to show them that using narrative approaches and even those concepts that, that can be seen from from the first look as technical, they can be very helpful to clarify what you're looking for uh, so this is another example. And dominant narratives, also, it's it, it's a known question. So the competing, between, competitions between narratives, which is known for most scholars, but for newcomers, perhaps less. So, so that was also the place for me to put on the agenda potential normative questions that can be addressed by the use of narratology. So I'm not the only one to use narratives to analyze moral questions, of course, but adapting this kind of language to the study of narratives. I thought that that would be a good place also for that.
1: That's really helpful that you mentioned that, and especially when you're referencing newcomers. You know, I want to ask you, what do you do when you have a research student who comes and they're trying to decide, there are so many options available in terms of how they approach the analysis of narrative or of text which traditions they choose to work in and why you are alluding to the power dimensions that adhere to all political questions. And of course, critical discourse analysis has power front and center. So if you have a student who's saying, how do I decide? You know, should, I, <laughs> should I do narrative analysis or CDA or some other type of textual analysis or Foucauldian genealogy or a conceptual history after uh, uh, Reinhard Kozilek, for example, what sort of advice do you offer them?
0: I love them all. Even I'm engaged with narratives. They all have so many de- depth within. And what I usually try to capture, at least when I teach, I try to show students the potential of as much as, as uh, approaches that I have, including the one that you mentioned and metaphor analysis also and other approaches. And then to give students the basic ideas of what there is or what, what kind of or what options we have. Basically, what I try to do first, and I try to understand the questions, the question that they have in mind or the puzzles that they like to solve. And then I think that skill for scholars and our students should be more skillful than us. Uh, of course, they have to have the potential of, of conducting research in many ways, not necessarily to be constrained by one method. Well, they have to master an approach perhaps, but they have to think of their question and then sometimes the the approach come after. Uh, But it's not always the case because some people will think about their question because they know something about CDA. They read CDA, they read Van Dyck or whoever they read and the Wodak or whoever. And then these works help them to frame questions. So Even my approach is not the only one. So I don't have one answer, but mainly I try to listen to be, well, I started to be a story listener, to be a student listener. First, to to be quiet and listen to the students, try to, to figure out what she has on her mind, what she wants to understand, what she doesn't understand, where are the puzzles, and then figure out what to recommend.
1: It sounds like an excellent pedagogy to me. It also ties in with the last passages and the last page of the book when you note that nowhere in the book have you addressed the question of what makes one a good interpreter of narratives because you say you don't have an answer to that question, but then you do go on to suggest at least that you have some thoughts on it and that among other things you say that one can find one's voice through listening to others and that this quality is what enables someone to do narrative analysis well. I'm wondering in the years since the book was published if you've had conversations with people around this question or had other thoughts about it, that you would like to reflect on now?
0: I'm thinking whether people talk with me about this position, which I still hold, even some years have passed, that you have to be able to develop their capability of listening, keeping in mind that when you have concept, you direct your listening to some aspects, and and this is something that I've also discussed with people. But I think that in many respects, the comments that or or the discussions that I had following the book were mainly about the attempt to arrange or to bring some, I wouldn't say order, but some guidelines for the broadness of narrative analysis that is becoming so broad. And I think that the main discussions that I had or the... The comments that I had that the book helped people to bring some order to their analysis or you know, to understand where they are located within the field of narrative analysis, whether they're more attentive to text, to the stories, to the structures, or to something else. These kind of discussions were the main ones that I had. And being a, a story listener is something that I really care for, but... It stayed, in a way, in the beginning and the end of the text. And I think that I'm very happy for the opportunity now that you raised that, because that's the opportunity to discuss this preposition of uh, what I believe is a good starting point to be a good interpretivist.
1: And having read the book, I'm not surprised at all that you've received comments and appreciation of the sort that you're just mentioning because it really is extremely well laid out in terms of, as you said, setting out what the alternatives are, what the options are for people going into or already doing narrative analysis where they would situate themselves. So I highly encourage listeners to take a look as well as having listened to both of us. Before we close, I want to come back to those computers scientists and their algorithms because you were making an important point that while there are from your point of view as an interpretivist uh, opportunities to engage with them and do work in narrative analysis differently from how you would have done and indeed did do in the past you also said that you think they need interpretivists or at least i'm paraphrasing what you said why is that the case this is something
0: that I'm thinking about. I haven't published that, so I have to think it over more deeply. But I'm, I am engaged in several works with scholars of computer science. The language models that we have today are developed to the extent that I think that the guidelines of people who are familiar with theories of texts and also familiar or sensitive with the different ways of reading even the same text, and the sensitiveness of ramifications of text. So since the, the models are advanced to the extent that they can capture nuances, I think that this is the right moment for scholars of interpretation to be engaged with those methods that will allow us to in a way multiply or to bring the sensitiveness of readers to the um, boom in algorithms that read and uh, classify or bringing any insights from textual uh, analysis in large scales. What happened historically, that people were doing interpretive, qualitative, interpretive, work, whatever you define it, we usually worked on a small amounts of text because of the nuances. That's the way you could go in depth. But now with the advancement of language models, you can try, you can fail with it, but you can try and you can see some success with that. To implement the sensitivity of scholars of interpretation into those algorithms that will read a lot of texts. And by the way, I find that not a few people from computer science know, for example, in my field, narratology, very well. And they try to capture narrative elements, narrative aspects within the text. So there are subfields within computer science that can be great partners for scholars of interpretation. And this is where I am right now.
1: That's really interesting. Can we look forward to another book coming on that topic at some point?
0: Now, when you raised it, I should consider that. I think that it's a a good idea. And there are some works that I've done on narratives with computer scientists that are in the pipeline. One of them has been published to capture, at least at the beginning, narrative elements automatically. And I think that there might be a time that I might think
1: about it, but I don't Mm. know yet. (laughs) Sounds to me like you might be the person to do it. Charles Chenab, at the start of the interview, I remarked on how pleased I was that we finally managed to schedule this conversation about analysing social narratives. And one reason was that we put it off for a long time. I'm grateful to you for your patience and very pleased that we've finally been able to have this discussion. Thank you so much, Nick. Listeners, I hope that you've also enjoyed the discussion as I did and that you've had the opportunity to listen to some of those other episodes on the Routledge series on interpretive methods featured in the new books in Interpretive Political and Social Science series. If not, you can check them out by going to our website and clicking on the top right-hand tab for academic partners or looking for them wherever you get your podcasts via the new books in Political Science channel.